here it is, the June 2018 Wilderness and Environmental Live podcast featuring self and friends. Today, we'll hit on canyoneering as our CME topic and then helicopter rescue. Let's get to business. First of all, our review of the paper, the International Commission for Mountain Emergency Medicine Consensus Guidelines for the On-Site Management and Transport of Patients in Canyoning Incidents. That's a long title, but basically we're going to talk about what we're going to do about our patients who are in canyoning incidents, or if you prefer canyoneering, like we might say in North America. But this is a very important paper because not much has been put out with regard to patient care in canyoneering incidents. And the International Commission for Mountain Emergency Medicine, the ICAR MedCom, we've talked about them previously. This is an international group of mountain medicine physicians from all over the world. Listen to them. And we have the privilege of talking to Dr. Giacomo Strapazan, who is from Italy, and he is based in Bolzano, Bolzano, in northern Italy. E dove il Bolzano? Ah, yes, it is in the Dolomiti, the beautiful Dolomite mountains of northern Italia. When the moon hits your eye like a figure beats a pie, that's amore. He is at the URAC Research Center. And you might say, what is URAC? What What is URAC? E-U-R-A-C. And there is a lot of research going on with regard to many things. Go ahead and look it up on the internet. E-U-R-A-C.edu, but they have an Institute of Mountain Emergency Medicine, and they're doing mounds of interesting research, which we will talk about throughout this interview. Giacomo is the vice head of the Institute of Mountain Emergency Medicine at URAC, and so we have him on the line. Tell us a little bit about URAC, and tell us a little bit about you, Giacomo. What are you up to? I'm Giacomo Strapazzona. I am uh, the deputy head of the Institute of Mountain Emergency Medicine at uh, URAC Research. So we are based in Bolzano, in uh, Dolomites, in northern Italy, and uh, we mostly deal with uh, research in uh, mountain emergency medicine, but we also perform uh, uh, search and rescue operation in uh, our mountain. And uh, we have uh, recently released uh, consensus guidelines for on-site management and transport of patients in canyoning incident by the International Commission for Mountain Emergency Medicine. UREC sounds really interesting. UREC exists uh, because uh, uh, in, in the vision of my uh, head, Professor Hermann Brugger, and me, there was uh, the vision to create uh, a center devoted uh, to, to research in mountain emergency medicine in order to gain more evidence-based recommendation and just to operate in a more standardized way when uh, we perform our search and rescue operation. So wait, URAC does research and search and rescue. Let's hear more. Mama Sita. Mama Sita. Mama mia, mama mia, mama mia, mama mia. Mama mia, let me go. As you know, uh, we have a quite an extensive uh, pre-hospital emergency service, and uh, we want to guarantee to all population and uh, all tourists coming uh, in our area the best uh, chance of treatment. Uh, We operate with a lot of air rescue, but also ground rescue, including a combination of the two. 
and uh, yeah, we try to to give the best and uh, always to improve our system. You also collaborate with many European countries, no? Yes, uh, we try to have uh, a, a strong net, so we collaborate uh, with all uh, countries uh, in the Alps, so Austria, Switzerland, France, Slovenia, but also with other countries uh, in uh, the big uh, European mountain raids like Pyrenees, or so Spain, and also countries of Northern Europe like Norway, Sweden. But I would say that we collaborate uh, a lot also with North America, and we try to merge the experience that you have in North America with the experience that we have in Europe. I think that sharing our different approach help all of us to improve our system. What are the three major research projects at URAC? I would say that the research at URAC mostly has as its core has avalanche rescue research and hypoter- accidental hypothermia research, but uh, uh, we start also to deal a lot with uh, high-altitude medicine. We have uh, a big project. We are building uh, a new environmental chamber in order, uh, which is called a Terex Cube, in order to standardize the research in a pre-hospital environment. Plus, uh, we work a lot with organized pre-hospital uh, search and rescue services. So here's the problem with doing outdoor research. It's unpredictable, you cannot control for certain confounding factors, and doing outdoor research can be dangerous. So URAC has built this TerraX Cube, which is a simulator for outdoor environments. The ease of access is very amazing, and you can have a maximum number of 12 people in the chamber according to their website with a 45-day stay, and you can also do physical activity. You also can go up to an altitude of 9,000 meters and imitate a temperature of minus 40 to 60 degrees centigrade. Wind up to 30 meters a second and you can have rain and snowfall as well in this TerraX Cube. The light is obviously controllable as well. The nice thing is it is safe with a control room and a medical monitoring system. And it also has an independent data acquisition system. So this is the Extreme Environmental Simulator, which is projected to be ready to go at the end of 2018 in Bolzano, Italy. Now I have Jake Jensen with me. Jake is our Wilderness Medicine Fellow at UNM, and I'm pleased to announce that he will stay with us as a faculty member for the IMMC. Jake, let's chat a bit with Giacomo. Yeah, so as you mentioned, you guys just published some guidelines for rescue and treatment of those involved in canyoning incidents. And the first question we'd like to ask is what led you all to decide that these guidelines were necessary or what was the impetus or driving force behind this paper? Actually, canyoning, uh, that is referred as canyonering uh, in the United States, in Australia and New Zealand, is uh, one of the fastest growing wilderness uh, environmental activity. This activity involves traveling through narrow valley or gorge with steep side or cliff and include a variety of of techniques. The popularity of canyoning has uh, has resulted in up to 40% of total search and rescue costs in some geographic location like uh, Zion National Park in Utah uh, U.S. Uh, or uh, in uh, uh, Sierra de Guara region in the Spanish Pyrenees. Uh, up to now, uh, some uh, evidence-based uh, guidelines were uh, missing, so we decided that was the time uh, to to try to catch what uh, there was uh, in the literature 
and uh, release it in the forms of uh, some consensus guideline. So I do have a question. You mentioned that in some areas, such as Zion National Park, canyoneering incidents might account for 40% of search and rescue operations. You also mentioned that specific to canyoneering search and rescue operations, the, the breakdown was somewhat 81% were due to injuries, 9% were due to medical or environmental illness, with the remaining 10% of rescues specific to canyoneering not involving any sort of injury or illness. How does that 10% rate of rescue without injury or illness compare to rescues done in other environments, such as the alpine environment? Is this a higher percentage, a lower percentage? And on that, are these individuals involved in these 10% needing rescue? Are they usually lost, um, kind of stuck in a location where they can't get out? Or what mostly, or what situations are they mostly finding themselves in? Okay, so to have uh, only a 10% uh, of uh, patient in a search rescue, rescue operation is uh, a pretty low percentage. In uh, other area of uh, search and rescue operation, we have a uh, a much higher rate of an injured patient. So this means that usually when uh, we are called for uh, a search and rescue operation in canyon environment, uh, we will have to face some injured or illness uh, patient. I should also say that uh, actually most of the injured patients are not severely injured, so they don't present life treating situation. Instead, uh, in the 9% of patients with uh, medical or environment, environmental illness, the rate of uh, severe illness is much higher, up uh, to 50% of uh, this group. Canyoneering in select areas responsible for a whopping, yes, whopping 40% of search and rescues in places like Zion National Park, 81% from injury alone, but most are not severely hurt and 9% are for medical causes, the rest for whatever other reasons. But these are just vagaries of the percentages depending on where you're at. Most injuries are not, I repeat, not severe. But in the medical category, half of these are very, very sick. He is a sick puppy. And the epidemiology for canyoneering incidents is quite different from that we might see in other environments, such as the alpine environment. So as you and the other authors have mentioned, those that are going canyoneering will encounter many different obstacles and environments in a very short time frame and can suffer from many types, types of injuries and illness, such as drowning, hypothermia, exertional illness, heat-related illness. And this paper does a great job at discussing each of these conditions. And individuals that are going to go canyoneering should be well-versed in the treatment of these conditions. And there are guidelines out there through the WMS and other organizations that do a great job discussing this, and we would recommend that all of our listeners and review those prior to canyoneering. With that said, what are some of the specific treatments, guidelines, or conditions that are more specific to canyoneering that people might encounter when they're going about this activity that you would like the audience to know about? I think uh, the first thing is uh, the risk assessment. Because a healthcare provider operating in a canyon search and rescue operation should learn a specific risk assessment and risk management, especially concerning swift water rescue and regional weather. Before initiating any ground search and rescue operation that involves entering a canyon, we should the water flow should be assessed, especially in the narrowest, narrowest section of the canyon 
and uh, the water flow should be closely evaluated and we should try to avoid uh, as much as possible the water contact because this uh, expose us to an increased risk. Moreover, weather conditions should be monitored before and during the rescue in order to minimize the risk of being caught by a flash flood, which actually is the first cause of a fatal accident in canyoning activity. Another uh, important and different element compared to other recreational activity in the mountain are droning. Uh, droning in canyon occur primarily due to mistakes such as entering hydraulic or entrapment uh, by undercut rocks or strainer while swimming or rappelling, and occasionally also by being caught in flash flood. There is a high association between drawing and high impact injuries in canyoning compared, for example, to, to sea rescue. Another peculiarity of canyoning is, uh, re is related to the management of trauma. When uh, we perform canyoning, we usually wear a wet or a dry suit in order to prevent uh, accidental hypothermia. So if uh, we need to do a physical examination, this can be difficult in a wet, in a wet canyon, but the assessment should be throughout as possible and prevent uh, wasted time to avoid hypothermia. So the best method is not to remove the suite, but to unzip it temporarily. And uh, if necessary, a longitudinal cut in the wet suite could provide assess for examination or intervention such uh, as hemorrhage control. And the cut should be, as just say, longitudinal and can be closed with bandages or Dutch tape to limit always the amount of heat loss. Another important element is uh, related to prevention of infection, in particular with open fracture and wounds. So wounds should be irrigated to decrease the infectious rate. And uh, we should also envisage the use of systemic antibiotics, prophylactic, not only for open fracture, but uh, it is reasonable also in severe wounds, in particular in poorly vascularized areas like hand, foot, or lower and upper limb, in particular if we have a high risk of zoonosis, so pool with not running water. So here's some specific treatment or guidelines. The take-home points. Number one, risk assessment. Know about swift water rescue and weather patterns. Water flow, especially in the narrows, is important in the risk assessment evaluation and please please know the weather number two avoid water contact as much as possible be aware of the possibility of flash flooding which accounts for the most deaths in canyoneering thirdly be aware of drowning be careful of those strainers and those entering hydraulics there's a higher chance of drowning in canyoning rescue than in ocean rescue did you know that number four be aware of accidental hypothermia the rescuers must wear a wet or dry suit and don't remove a wetsuit from the patient, but rather unzip or make a longitudinal cut as small as possible to get at a given access point on the patient, and then you can close with a bandage wrap or duct tape. Number five, be aware of wound contamination in the water and irrigate these wounds properly. Bacteria and endemic parasites such as leptospirosis is a big concern. And Giacomo, you recommend prophylactic antibiotics in very risky wounds 
or hand-foot injuries that break the skin. Speaking of leptospirosis, I wonder if it's a problem in Europe. There has been uh, several cases of uh, leptospirosis in uh, Canyon, in particular after flash flood. This happened because often uh, the, the river cross some uh, uh, villages where still uh, wastewater is running inside the canyon or because often in a canyon uh, we can find bloated deers or other small animal carcasses. And so we have really to take care of this, uh, this factor when we perform this activity, in, in, especially when there is a low flow of water. Thank you. Those were some of the things I picked up on too, especially considering wounds and antibiotics because uh, myself, probably like you also, have been in those pools where you swam next to, like you mentioned, the bloated deer. And... This doesn't seem like a good place to, to have a wound at all. And along those lines, you guys had made mention of if someone needed like IV access, intravenous fluids, to strongly you know, consider other alternatives due to the risk of infection. Is that correct? Exactly. A uh, lot of time to have uh, an IV access can be problematic, first of all, because our patient can develop, even if he is wearing a wet suit, quite quickly an accidental hypothermic state. So it will be much, uh, dif- uh, much more difficult to find an IV access. So alternative route of drug administration, in particular painkiller, could be the nasal route for, uh, with the MAD device, or uh, we should also consider intraosseous assess, but this uh, should be removed as early as possible, and in any case, uh, within uh, 24 hours. This is due to the high risk of, uh, for sure, possible infection. Another thing, you had mentioned the use of helicopters and search and rescue missions. Much of our audience is located in the United States, and from my personal experience in canyoneering in the Southwest United States, it seems that many of our canyons, they're mostly dry with some pools, but very little to no running water as compared to photos and videos I've seen from elsewhere, such as Europe and New Zealand. Also, many of the canyons in the United States can have extremely high walls to the extent that oftentimes it's recommended in certain areas that you take a headlamp even during midday. Based on your research, do you feel that helicopters are used as much in the United States as they are elsewhere, or do you feel that the numbers are about the same? I think that uh, the use of helicopter is uh, less common in the United States compared to Europe, where, for example, in France, reach uh, a rate as high as 90%. But we have also to underline that most of this operation combine uh, air and ground rescue. In uh, North America, a lot uh, of helicopters are used just to bring the healthcare provider next to the canyon, and often then uh, the healthcare provider repels them inside the canyon with the equipment and often comes out with the patient throughout the canyon or through an escape route. This helps to shorten the rescue time, but we have always to consider that if a patient has an injury in a canyon, most of the time is not a severe or a life-treating injuries. Most of the injuries involve lower and upper limbs, so can be managed with some on-site treatment and then helping the patient to exit from the canyon. A lot of time without a stretcher, other times with long uh, rescue operation using a stretcher. 
Are there any other unique factors or situations our audience should know about that you feel are more specific or more likely to be encountered in the United States? I would say that uh, uh, practicing canoning uh, in the uh, uh, United States exposes us for longer time to wilderness environment. So we have a long approach with a high risk of uh, heat-related illness or contact with uh, wild plants or animals. For example, uh, there is a high, high risk, for example, of uh, tick-borne disease that we should always envisage, in particular in the moment that we are changing our clothes before entering the canyon. And then uh, I would say that in the United States, uh, the, the canyon are usually longer. So we have uh, to envisage to have all uh, first aid uh, and uh, some survival equipment in order to sleep inside the canyon because often it requires more than one day to perform the full, uh, the full route. Uh, instead, in Europe, usually the canyons are shorter and uh, most of them uh, can be performed in uh, half a day. All right. You need IV access? Try not to do that. It's very difficult with a wetsuit unless you take it off and then you're causing a possibility of accidental hypothermia. Use intranasal medications or, worse comes to shove, consider IO access. But IO access may pose a risk for infections later on down the road, so remove and replace that IO access ASAP. In the United States, rescues often involve access, repelling to the patient, then a raise. Helicopters in Europe, they're obviously faster, but they are tricky. In the U.S., we would probably spend more time out in the environment, and so the U.S. canyons are longer, and that's probably why. So we have to be prepared for hyperthermia as well, and not to forget that survival kit for that possible overnight stay. On the other hand, canyons are shorter in Europe and may just take half a day, but you Europeans, you should be ready with your survival kit as well. So after listening, I would imagine that some of our audience has a greater desire to go canyoneering and experience this sport. For those that don't have a lot of experience, what, what recommendations might you have for them to get more experience in some of the specific technical skills that they need so that they can enjoy this sport? I think the uh, uh, best option to approach uh, to this environment uh, is just uh, to have a guide, an experienced or certified canyoning guides uh, that help uh, us uh, to understand the canyon environment. Even if, if we have a good preparation in, uh, in climbing or in mountaineering, this is not enough uh, for practicing canyoning. First of all, uh, because the rappel techniques are different and uh, using, for, a, for example, a knot at the end of the rope could put uh, us in danger of drowning uh, if we are not able to use it in the correct way. And on the other side, we have to be familiar with uh, hydraulic and uh, swift water. So a good place, for example, for practice uh, wet canyon, I would say one of the best probably in, uh, on, uh, in the world, is uh, Sierra de Guare region in Spain, for example, Peonera River, which is uh, quite uh, technically quite easy, but challenging from uh, the sweet water side. Instead, if we wanted to practice uh, challenging rappel and probably also some uh, uh, scrambling and exiting from some pothole, I would re recommend Slot Canyon in uh, Zion National Park. Where is the Sierra de Guara? Sierra de Guara uh, is uh, an area in uh, the Spanish side of Pyrenees. Actually, it's the place in Europe that was uh, born the recreational canyoneering. This is due to the fact that it is uh, in, uh, in this hilly region 
with a lot of uh, spring water. So you have a very warm environment outside, but very fresh water inside, always clean with low risk of zoonosis and a beautiful environment and a beautiful villages around that attracted and still attract a lot of uh, tourists for near, nearby areas and all uh, friends. Sounds like we're going to have to plan a trip. Would you be our guide? Actually, we are organizing since a couple of years with some colleagues from Spain and Switzerland, which are also co-author of these guidelines, a specific or probably the first specific training course for healthcare provider in Canyon in a Rescue. And this is a course intended to familiarize with this environment and then to practice some first aid technique in the most common accident that we can find in Canyon Search and Rescue Operation. Okay, WMS, let's organize that CME course with these guys. Yeah, we would be delighted to have the participation of some members of the Wilderness Environmental Medicine Society. So is there anything else specific towards the medical treatment and canyoneering incidents, this paper that you all put out that you would like our listeners to know about? I would emphasize once more the importance of uh, risk assessment and uh, prevention. For example, uh, the need to have a suitable harness, helmet, and especially canyon-specific equipment. Some study has demonstrated, for example, that uh, specifically designed canyoning shoes may reduce the risk of fall hazard, as well as the occurrence of foot injuries. So yes, uh, as Always when we go to the environment, we have always to be prepared to the environment where we are going, always to bring with us some first aid equipment. Canyoning shoes, first aid equipment. Uh, Jake, time to throw out those old Tiva sandals. And climbing skills may not translate well for canyoneering skills, so we need to get training. Yeah, exactly. Sounds like some swift water training course, you know, is also needed for this. Seems among some of the most extreme environments, given that you can encounter so many different things from heat to cold to drowning, trauma, and stressing the importance that just because you're good at one sport that involves ropes doesn't necessarily translate to being able to go canyoneering and ensure that you'll be safe the entire time. Yes, this is always important really not to go uh, without uh, proper preparation in this environment. We have had several deadly accident in Europe due to this, uh, these cases. But uh, nevertheless, you have also excellent uh, search and rescue team. I have known personally the guys in uh, Sayo National Park, uh, the park ranger, and in particular also Dr. Gordon Larsen, who is the medical advisor for them and uh, work in the nearby hospital. And I think if you go there, you can have a beautiful time and is one of the most uh, astonishment environment that I've seen. Thanks Giacomo for enlightening us on canyoning and rescue. Yeah, thank this you. Great. You're welcome. <laughs> I recently caught up with one of our friends, Oliver Cruiser, who is a flight paramedic and hoist operator for Air Zermatt. We took a break during our Diploma Mountain Medicine Rescue scenario, and we will be discussing some of the differences between helicopter rescue in the Alps versus here in the U.S. and in Nepal. So, let's go. Air Zermatt is located uh, in the Southern Alps, and the big known mountain out there is the Matterhorn, isn't it? Yes, that's correct. So, whenever you go to Walmart or Target and you buy a Toblerone, <laughs> 
Um, that's actually the chocolate shape after that mountain called Matterhorn. Wow. Well, it's great to have you out here with our uh, program here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I know you came a long way. And I understand the other day you were able to go to our local sheriff's department. And for you listeners, remember that we had a podcast uh, two iterations ago on our helicopter rescue services. And you saw some interesting differences between what we do here in the United States and what you do in Switzerland. Yes, um, that was a big honor for me to participate in one of those um, helicopter rescue training days with the local sheriff department and University of New Mexico. So it was great to see different service and different techniques. Um, they did a fantastic job. I just see some differences between our hoist program and the local sheriff department's program here is that in Switzerland, we do dynamic hoisting, where it seems that in the United States they practice more of the static hoisting. Yeah, the static hoisting. Yeah, so what we will do is we'll insert somebody into take care of a casualty, and the line will go down, and then we'll hoist that line up with the rescuer and the casualty, but often the helicopter will stay still. It'll rotate as usual, but it won't move. And what happens is we have to have a tagline so that the litter doesn't spin around because that's the danger that we encounter is if we don't have that tagline with another rescuer on the bottom holding that tagline, the guy in the litter is going to spin out really quick and probably lose consciousness. But you guys don't do that. Tell me about what dynamic hoisting is. Yes, so we're hoisting almost since 50 years and we've done more than 12,000 hoist rescues and we never ever had to use a tagline. So this is actually quite new to me, but we never had the need for it either. So basically if a helicopter hovers static, he produces a lot of downwash and that downwash goes underneath the helicopter. That's why the load starts to spin. So our technique is that as soon as we pick up the load, the helicopter needs to go moving 30 to 40 knots forward movement. So the downwash is way behind the helicopter and not underneath the load. So the load is only exposed to the relative winds. So it's very stable. Um, our load should never uh, rotate more than one evolution. So it's very easy for the load. It's very easy for the hoist operator and also easy for the pilot. And we never want to have that helicopter hover for too long because we always talk about exposure time. The helicopter the, uh, or the, the pilots, they don't like to expose themselves to hover for too long. If you have an in-flight emergency, engine failure, tail rotor or whatnot, it's always safer to have that helicopter uh, in the forward movement. And also the rescuer, he likes to not spin. Um, while getting hoisted <laughs> up right. and also the casualties often the casualties are already hypothermic and so on so you have this huge fan above you for you know um, producing that the wind chill factor for a couple of minutes which is not pleasant and you have white out brown out and rocks getting mm -hmm. loose and, and, and um, tree branches break and so on and so we try to do the minimized exposure time we always want to have the helicopter move moving when we reel in and reel out that cable and many i received many questions because i did a talk at hai the, the rescue summit in vegas last week and many came up to me and asked me well what about confined space like taking oh. people out of trees forests and canyons and so on yeah H how would you do that and i said well that's an easy one because we also have trees and canyons all that so what we do is 
basically the helicopter is taking the load and not the hoist operator so just like short haul the helicopter is uh, lifting vertical on, until the load is above the obstacles then he gives a sign and then we the helicopter goes in transition to forward flight and then that's when the hoist operator starts to reel in that load so our load really doesn't spin we don't have to use that tagline we don't have to have that extra rescuer on the ground holding no the tagline tag that's amazing so yeah. i really don't see a need for a tagline to me it seems more like for our passion more dangerous and also seeing that helicopter hovering for so long it's just in my opinion not a good idea so it also appears that without all the complications of a tagline and just even looking at the systems that you showed me just now even your hookup system is a lot more simpler than what we have here in North America. Very complex here in North America. Yes, what we are a huge believer in uh, simplicity. So our rescues at high altitude can get very complex. And um, we also perform a helicopter rescue in Nepal up to 7,000 meters. And what we found was that the simpler the whole operation is, the more safe and efficient it becomes. And it worries to me to see that the industry is more towards like being more complicated they try to make things safer with adding more and more straps and all that but to me to be honest with short hauling like all i need is a single rope at the end a single carabiner i need to have a clear harness with a single hook on it you just clip in that's it i'm not a fan of huge tactical vests with so many mm. possible um, fault links you can actually hook on wrong and so on so i see this big concern of people um, having a hard time to figure out where to hook in and so on under a stress situation so the key to success is the more complex rescues are, the simpler you should operate with the minimal amount of, of people. And over the past year, how many of hoist operations have you actually had in the area? So the statistics last year, um, we did 382 hoist rescues with a total of two rescue helicopters we have. So for us, it's it's a, it's, it's a daily thing we do. Um, we do 1,700 um, rescues per year with two helicopters. So we hoist quite often. The last six years we have we had had 1,600 hoist cycles just on the one um, hoist helicopter. And if I can ask this delicately, we don't have to talk about it if we don't want. How many casualties have you had with the helicopter in the past year or two? Because your system is like, very simple. Like what casualty? Means? You know, helicopter crashes or oh. you know things like that. So knocking on woods on the in the last 50 years with a total of 40,000 uh, helicopter rescues and 12,000 plus hoist rescues, we had uh, zero fatalities and no helicopter down during the rescues. So we were very fortunate. That is amazing. And you guys helped the program in Nepal to do helicopter rescues. Yes, that's correct. So um, we received a phone call once to rescue a climber stuck at very high altitude. Tell me about that. So. In 2011, we received this phone call where one of their, uh, uh, Tomar Huma, a uh, very famous climber from Slovenia, he mm. had an accident up at around 6,500 6, meters and they called us if he can go and fetch him. So an experienced pilot and the rescuer from Sermat uh, departed by commercial airplane to Nepal and they received a B3, a local B3 helicopter. So all they did was looking for that um, casualty and they attached a 20 meter short haul 
attached a rescuer at the end of it and just flew in and unfortunately he died in the meantime due to his injuries but they were able to get him out and then our goal was to train the locals so they can perform those rescues themselves because they had some great people great pilots great sherpas as rescuers and also um, good helicopters so we started to train them to do their rescues themselves well that's great well good well thank you any last comments or anything like that that you might have oliver yes just two points uh, first of all um looking at dynamic hoisting uh, for us it's a very safe and efficient and easy way of, of performing hoist rescues and the second point is please keep things simple downsize to the very reduce to the very max you need to do and you will be much safer and more efficient and um, performing helicopter rescues great well thanks for your time Thank you. And that concludes our Wilderness and Environmental Medicine live podcast from Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, the official journal of the Wilderness Medical Society. Copyright Wilderness Medical Society, published by L. Severe. Don't forget to complete the CME questions at www.wms.org under Members. And drop us a line at wemlive.wms.org. Be safe and talk to you next time. God's golden shoes.